when I introduced the biblical idea of a covenant, and I, and I introduced it with some questions. Uh, the, f- the first question was this, who are your enemies? Who are the people who have betrayed you, wounded you, hurt you most? Who are the people who, when their name is mentioned, you get that tightness in the pit of your stomach? And that feeling like an old scab is being ripped off, leaving you freshly bleeding. And I went on to ask what you would do if you had unlimited power to get even with these who are your enemies. And then I talked a little bit about the wonderful grace of God who, given unlimited power to enact revenge, chooses instead to make peace with those who are his enemies, and that he does so through covenants, agreements between God and people, where God condescends to us to enter into an agreement with us to live up to a certain set of promises that he has made to us to enable us to have relationship with him and be at peace. Now, Abram was and is the mediator and the recipient of one of God's covenants. And we saw back in chapter 12 that God made this covenant with Abram. He said, Abram, leave and go from your country and your father's household. Leave all of that behind and go to the land I will show you. And there I'll make you a great nation. I'll give you many descendants and all of your people will be a blessing to all the nations, right? Great promises. He's telling him you're going to have a land, you're going to have God's blessing, through you is going to come the Messiah who was promised uh, to Adam and Eve back in the garden in Genesis 3. You're going to have tremendous blessing, and you're going to have this land that I'm going to give you. That was chapter 12. We looked at that back in May before I went on vacation, and then it's taken us a couple weeks to kind of get back to where we are now, chapter 15. And in the intervening weeks, we've seen that Abram didn't exactly hold up his end. First of all, he took with him Lot, who was part of the father's household he was supposed to leave behind. He also took with him a lot of stuff from his father's household, which he probably should have left behind. And when things got tough in the land that God said to go to, then he went to Egypt. And while he was in Egypt, he lies about his wife being his sister. She winds up in Pharaoh's household and part of his harem as his wife. God has to miraculously intervene to preserve the line of Abram even existing. And it's only through God's miraculous intervention that Abram and Sarai both get out of Egypt as a couple. And then because Lot is along for the ride, Lot is now living in Sodom and Abram has had to rescue him. We saw that last week. And you might be forgiven for wondering if God is still planning to use these people to bring about the blessing on all the nations of the earth. Because Abram is a mess. I mean, he has these periods of just tremendous faith 
and great trust in God, and he's building altars wherever he goes to worship God, and he trusts God to take care of him, even even though the king of Sodom offers him great riches, he says, I won't take a shoelace or the strap of a of a of, of a sandal. I won't take I won't take any thread that belongs to you because I'm going to trust God to bless me. And in fact, I'm going to take of what God has blessed me with and honor God's man, the priest Melchizedek. Great faith. But on the other hand, his, it's just moments. And interspersed with those moments are punctuated staggering stupidity. In fact, we're going to see one next week. What do you think God is going to do with this man with whom he has made a covenant and yet who has basically rejected every component of it? He rejected his wife when it was put his life at risk in Egypt. He rejected the land by going to Egypt. He rejected God's original instruction by taking Lot, who has caused no end of problems and is going to cause some more. What do you think God is going to do with this man, Abram? Well, I'll tell you. He is going to reaffirm his covenant. And he is going to make it clear that even though Abram maybe hasn't been the most faithful man, that he is still a faithful God. Genesis chapter 15. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. Abram said, O sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him, This man will not be your heir, but a son coming from your own body will be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look up at the heavens and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Abram believed the Lord, and he credited, credited it to him as righteousness. What did God do with a faithless man of questionable obedience, or at least variable obedience? He came, he came to him in a vision, and he spoke to him, and he says, Your co my covenant with you is still good. This is how it's described. It says, the word of the Lord came to Abram. I think that's very interesting. Uh, Abram sees this vision, and he sees something, and he knew it was the Lord God speaking. And what he saw is described as the word of the Lord. Now, you may not know it, but one of the more common ways that God is described as speaking to someone is with this little expression, the word of the Lord came to. And so you get in the prophets, as an example, the word of the Lord came to Isaiah, the son of Amos, saying... 
The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. The word of the Lord came to Ezekiel. The word of the Lord came to Amos. The word of the Lord came to Moses, etc. right? But what's interesting is you get clues that it's not just some sort of disembodied voice that is speaking. Look at verse look at verse 5. It says he took him outside. Interesting. So in other words, there's evidently some sort of a figure that Abram is seeing who is saying, "Come on, Abram, let's go outside." Right? And of course, later on, you're going to see uh three figures that appear to Abram and eat with him in his tent. But and, and why do I bring all this up? It's because of this. It's because the word of the Lord is God himself speaking. And apparently having a, a visible form that Abram can see. And so it's not just some, like I say, some sort of disembodied voice. Remember, and why is this significant? Remember how John starts off his gospel? In the beginning was the, what? The word. And the word was with God, and the Word was God. And then it says that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Why does John pick that particular Word and call him the Word? It's because he's saying that all of these times when it says the Word of the Lord came to, that the person who came to the prophet whether Abram or Isaiah or Jeremiah or Daniel or whoever, is the same person who took on flesh and dwelt among us. The Word of the Lord, the second person of the Trinity, who became incarnate in Jesus Christ. The Word of the Lord came. Now, that bit is free, okay? That's not all all totally relevant to my point here. But I want you to see that so that you understand how this line is traced all the way through the Old Testament and comes into the New Testament, and you see it, that the word of the Lord came. And, and what does he say? He says, don't be afraid. That's always interesting to me. The first words out of God's mouth when he speaks to someone or when an angel comes as the messenger of God to someone and speaks to them, the first thing they say is always... Don't be afraid, (laughs) because apparently this is a more normal reaction. When you see the living God, and he shows up in your tent in the desert, and you see him, it's a terrifying thing to see this incredible, powerful being stand before you. Don't be afraid. And he says, Abram, I am your shield. What's a shield? Shield is your defensive part of your armor. Abram's just been to battle, and he has just given up this great treasure that he won in the battle. And God says, I'll protect you. Don't you worry about it. And he says, I am what? Your very great reward. In other words, you think the king of Sodom had some stuff? I'll be your reward. You did the right thing, Abram. You did the right thing. I will reward you. I will protect you. I will reward you. You don't have to worry about it. And then he says this. 
Abram has this, this interesting moment here because he has his doubts here. God is speaking to him directly. And Abram says, yeah, okay. Essentially, he says, what can you give me? Since the person who is going to inherit my estate is going to be a servant in my house. Yeah, okay, you're going to be my great reward. Um, you know, I, you made me some promises about descendants, and I'm not getting any younger, and neither is the bride. And um, where are they at? And, I, you know, according to custom, my servant, my chosen servant is going to be adopted into my family, and I'm going to designate him as my heir. And God says, this man is not going to be your heir. And they go outside, and he, they look up at the stars. Now, I don't, you can't really do this if you live in any place uh, that's, you know, as developed even as this is. But if you get out into a remote area, and this is great. I have some of the, some of the, one of the, my great memories of looking up at the stars is I was out in Elephant Butte, New Mexico. Now, if you do not know where that is, that's okay. Most people who live in New Mexico do not know where that is. This little bitty berg out on the edge of this huge lake. And we went out with a friend of mine who lived there for, at the time on his boat, and we laid the seats down in the boat, and we just looked up at the stars. And if you've never done that, you've never been out west into an area where there are not any people and there is not any light from the city or anything else, and just look up and there are millions of stars that you cannot see here. Millions. And in fact, you can see so clearly that you can actually see satellites on a clear night where there's no, there's no cloud cover. You can see the satellites go around, and ours go one way, and the Chinese and the Russians go the other way. Okay. Uh, you can tell which one is which, I guess, so that you can know which ones to shoot down if you're the, you know, on the opposing side. But in any case, um, you can see this stuff, and it's amazing. And, of course, we can't see even one-tenth of all the stars that there are. When you look up and you see the Milky Way galaxy... What you're actually seeing is our side of the Milky Way galaxy, the part that is near you. The, the other side goes on for literally thousands of light years past you, okay? But, a, but God tells Abram, look up at the stars and start counting. That's what your offspring will be. And it won't be through Eliezer, but... It, through a descendant from your own body. It'll be your direct son. And Abram's going, well, okay. And it says, the text says, and this is one of the most important verses in Genesis. He says that Abram believed God and God credited it to him as righteousness. Now, where else does that show up? Romans. You've read Romans, you know that Paul makes a very big deal out of that verse. Why? Uh, what he's saying is this, um, 
Paul says that it's never a person's own merit or actions or goodness that determines the nature of God's relationship with them. It's that they believe what God's word says. And Abram is the forefather of all who believe what God's word says. And Abram believed in the promises of God which were made to him. And as a result of him trusting in God's word, God says, okay, I'll credit that to your account as being righteousness. Not that Abram was this tremendously righteous guy. If anything, we're going to see that his life is very colorful. It isn't because he was just so wonderful of a person that God said, well, I will, I will consider you to be a person of faith. No. It's in spite of all of the wild and woolly activity he gets into, we're going to see some, of which we're going to see some more next week. In spite of all that, on the basis of Abram's faith, God says, you're mine because you believed and trusted in what I told you. What did Abram do to receive God's promises? Nothing. What did Abram do to be credited with righteousness? Nothing. He simply believed that what God had said was true. And incidentally, that is exactly the way that God still works today. That is why Paul takes that little verse there at the end, uh, at verse 6, there at the end of that section, and runs with it as far as he does. He says, look, Paul says, look, this is exactly the same way that God works with people today. He justifies people. He counts them righteous, not on the basis of their works, but on the basis of his. And all they have to do is believe that what God says is true. And we, as, as, as people, are justified before God and declared righteous in his sight by believing what God says is true about Jesus, about the one who descended from Abraham, who God promised to Abram, that this person is going to come and he will be the Savior who will die on a cross, who will be raised from the dead, and who through his death will make the payment for your sin and for mine. And if you believe that, that what God's word is true, then you are counted as righteous, just as Abram was. And just in case Abram misses the point, or that we do, he's going to underline the seriousness with which he takes his promises that he makes. And the unilateral nature of their fulfillment. And he's going to do that through a ceremony. And it's going to, let's continue reading here. He says, He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abram said, O sovereign Lord, how can I know I'll gain possession of it? So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram brought all these to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Then birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. And as the sun 
was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated 400 years. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterwards they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. And when the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, Kenizzites, Cadmonites, Hittites, Perizzites, Rephites, Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites, and Jebusites. What's going on here? Uh, in verse 7, Abram, reminds, Abram is reminded by God of who he is as God, that he is the God who called him all the way to the place where he is now living. Now, you may remember, where was Abram living in chapter 12? Haran. So, why does he say, I am the God who called you out of Ur of the Chaldees? Because he had a plan for Abram, and he was directing Abram's life through all of those circumstances, even before he had even first spoke to him. The first recorded speech that we have in Genesis of God and uh, to Abram is in chapter 12, where he's in Haran. So how can he say, I am the God who called you out of Ur? Because he was still God then. And in fact, the same thing is true for you and I. God says, before you were born, I knew you. Before the, that we were bought with the blood of a lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world, right? And he's saying, look here, Abram, way back before you knew me, back when you were a pagan worshiper of the moon god living in Ur, I knew you, and I had a plan for you, and I'm the one who brought you to Haran, and I'm the one who called you in Haran, and I'm the one who brought you through all these circumstances. I am that God, the same one who has been at work in your life the whole time, whether you knew it or not. And he says, look here, I'm the one who brought you to this land to give it to you and to take possession of it. In other words, you're not just here just simply on a lark. I brought you here for a purpose so that you might have this land. And he says, so that you might know this, we're going to do, do a sacrifice and we're going to make a covenant. In fact, the word literally is when it says in verse 18, on that day the Lord made a covenant, the word literally is cut a covenant because of what he's about to have Abram do. He says, take a young goat, take a heifer, take a ram, take two birds, and split them in half. And, and we're going to lay this out. And what you did when you cut a covenant this way is that you walked with your covenant maker you and the other party would walk together in between the pieces. And what you were doing is pronouncing on yourself sort of an imprecatory declaration. And you were saying, may it be done to me as has been done to this animal if I fail to keep my word. Now, you know, when we go to the court 
nowadays, right? Put your hand on the Bible, raise your right hand. You swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth to help you God. Yes. Okay. Now, what if the bailiff said, well, we're going to take you outside for a second. We're going to slaughter this bull and split it in half with a meat axe. And we're going to have you walk in between. Do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth to help you God, realizing that if you are found guilty of perjury, we will chop you in half? Would that lend a degree of solemnity to the proceedings? Amen? That would, okay? And that is what is about to happen. Abram thinks that he and God are going to walk through together. And so he's driving away the stuff. And he and then, but what happens is very interesting. God causes a deep sleep to fall on Abram. And it says a thick darkness came over him. And the Lord then starts to make predictions. You know what? You are going to have a lot of descendants, just like I promised. But they're going to be enslaved 400 years. And in the fourth generation, that is after those 400 years, they're going to come out. And they're going to come out rich. And they're going to come back here, and they're going to take possession of this land. You yourself, Abram, are not going to have very much of it, but your descendants will. It's just going to take some time. Why is it going to take time? Well, because the sin of the Amorites, which is a general term for the Canaanite people group that are living there, is not yet reached its full measure. In other words, God is saying, I am a patient God, and these people in 400 years are going to need wiped out. Because they're going to, at that point, be full on into child sacrifice and all kinds of other sins that you can read about in uh, Leviticus 18, 19, 20. Uh, you, if, if you want an education on the, some of the things that the Canaanites were doing, you can read those. And it'll say, do not do this. This is what the people of the land that you are going to conquer do. And they'll... T and. But God is patient. He's waiting. He's going to wait 400 years after this for the sin of the Amorite people to reach its full extent. And then at that point, they'll be judged. And God says, it is going to happen, and I'll prove it to you. And so while Abram is asleep, what happens? Flaming torch and the fire pit fire pot representing the holiness of God walk through alone because it's a unilateral promise in other words Abram you're not much for keeping promises and holding up your end but I am God and I will unilaterally promise you that I will hold up my end and then he pronounces again these are the boundaries of the land from the great river of Egypt to the great river Euphrates, the Jordan River, to the Mediterranean. This land will be yours. And I will give it to you. And I will take it away from all these people. The Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadmonites, Hittites, Perizzites, Rephites, Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites, and Jebusites. They're all going to be driven out before you and you will possess their land. 
Here's the point. What's God saying to Abram? My covenant does not depend on you. It depends on me. And I am trustworthy even when you are not. I am going to keep my promises, Abram. You can trust me. You can believe me. Now, Abram might very naturally have some doubts on this, right? Well, you promised me descendants, but I haven't had the first kid yet. I'm an old man, and my wife is barren. God says, trust me. You're going to have kids. It's going to happen. He says, I don't have any land. I'm squatting on land that belongs to Mamre the Amorite, living at his oasis. I'm a rich man, but I own no dirt anywhere. God says, trust me, it's going to happen because I am the one who is making the guarantee. It's not dependent on you, Abram. It's dependent on me, and I will bring it to pass. Uh what would you do? Let me ask you, just to go back to the beginning of this. What would you do if you are faced with a man who has behaved like Abram, a man of questionable loyalty and periods of great faith punctuated by staggering stupidity? What would you do if you were God? Would you make an agreement with a man like that? Well, if you're the God of the Bible, you have to because it's the only kind that are available. <laughs> all right? Uh, we're all sinners. This is us. And if you don't see your, yourself in Abram's uh, variations yet, you will. You just need to get older <laughs> and realize that we're all that way. We all have periods of our life that, man, we're on fire for the Lord and we're doing what's right and we're making good decisions. And then other periods of our life where it's like, where were you on that one, genius? <laughs> and God, what he does is he reaffirms his covenant with Abram. He's the, make, he's the one who makes it clear that I am the one who called people into relationship with me and I am the one who will be faithful regardless. I'm going to keep my promises. Um, I would dare say that most of us, if we look back over our life, they're probably uh, a lot like Abram. It's periods of faith and periods of epic foolishness all mixed together. But here's the thing. I want to encourage you with just a couple things. Number one, we must believe and trust in the God who is always faithful. We must believe and trust. God credited righteousness to Abram's account, not on the basis of who Abram was, and certainly not on the basis of how he behaved, but on the fact that he believed what God's word said was true. He believed God, and God counted him righteous. So let me ask you, do you believe God? Do you believe, first and most importantly, in Jesus Christ? Do you believe that he was and is the Messiah, the second person of the Trinity who became incarnate as a man, who took on flesh, who lived a human life, 
who died on a cross for your sin and for mine, and who proved that all his claims were true by being raised from the dead. Do you believe what God says about that man, Jesus Christ? If you do, God credits it to you as righteousness. Not based on who you are, not certainly not based on what you've done, but based on what he has done for you. Do you believe what he says? Do you believe what God's word says about sin? That it is dangerous, that it is destructive, that it brings death to all who participate in it. Even if it seems fun for a while, even if, you know, like those old 45 records, you know, you had you had two sides, you had the A side and the B side, and on a, the A side is twist and shout, and on the B side is who knows what, right? And, and you wore the needle through on the A side, because man, you're doing twist and shout, right? <laughs> okay, and, uh, and you're, having a, you're having the time of your life, right? But sooner or later, no, I'm not doing that again. Uh, <laughs> the B side of that record is going to play. And here's the thing. What God tells us about sin is that there is a B side. And it might seem fun for a while. It might seem like a good time. But sooner or later, death and destruction is going to reign in your life if you follow and pursue sin instead of him. Do you believe what God says? Do you believe what God says about the church? That the church is the one place that God creates on earth for people to be transformed. Through the practice of ministry, through the celebration of the sacraments, through participation in worship, through the fellowship of the saints. Do you believe what God says about the church? Let me just ask the question generally. Do you believe what God says in here? If you do, then our lives ought to, ref- ought to reflect that. Amen? Last, last little bit of encouragement here before we celebrate communion. God will, say it with me, God will keep his covenant. God will keep his covenant. One more time. God will keep his covenant even when we are faithless. Even when we are faithless. Okay? I have been faithless in more ways at more times than I can count. Thank God he does not keep score. Thank God that he removes our sin from us as far as the east is from the west and drowns it in the sea of his forgetfulness. Thank God that he is a God who keeps covenant even when we don't hold up our end. Thank God that it's a unilateral covenant where God says, I choose you to be mine. And and we say, I believe you, okay. But that it's not dependent on me. And it's not dependent on you any more than it was dependent on Abram. What did Abram have to do to receive God's blessing? Show up, essentially, and receive it. God said, I am going to do this. Why? Because I am God, and I have chosen you, and I'm going to work through you, and I'm going to work in spite of your sin, and I'm going to work uh, even with your sin to accomplish my objectives and purposes for the entire world.
through you. And God has a plan and a purpose and a covenant that he has made with you. Remember I said the word is that he has cut a covenant? Guess what? God has cut a covenant with us. And you know what happened? We broke it. We broke it time after time after time after time. And we deserved to be, according to the scriptures, put to death as a result. That we deserve to have done to us what was done to those animals. But guess what happened? Jesus Christ is the sacrifice instead on our behalf. Though we deserve to be slaughtered like an ox or a ram or a goat or two birds chopped in half and killed, Jesus was pierced and whipped and hung and killed so that God would keep his covenant with us and bring us into relationship with him. Though we did all the sinning, God does all the saving. Though we mess up on a daily basis, even though we disparage the sacrifice of Christ by our sin after we have decided to follow him, God took all the penalty. Though we did all the covenant breaking. Now, if that does not encourage you on 4th of July, that we have freedom indeed, freedom from sin, freedom from death, freedom from hell, because of the sacrifice of the God who makes covenant with us, who keeps it even when we don't, and who holds us by his grace in his hand. He says in John, my sheep hear my voice, and they know me, and I give eternal life to them, and no one can take them out of my hand. And he says, my Father who is given to me is greater than all, and no one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. You are held by the Father and the Son in covenant with him, not based on you, but based on them, based on the fact that the triune God loves you, bought you, saved you, and is carrying you home. same God who made a unilateral covenant with Abram has made one with you through the blood of the Lamb. And we ought to celebrate that. Amen? So let's celebrate as we take communion. Let's pray.